You can open up your copy of the Bible uh, to Luke chapter 1. We're doing Advent sermons uh, this month of December. We're, we're taking a break from the book of Hebrews. We'll be back in that uh, in January, Lord willing. Uh, but I want to say thank you for those of you who, starting last Sunday, already took some of the paper ornaments off those trees that are in the back. Uh, so many of you became cardinal elves and, and purchased gifts for clients of cardinal services. Many of you have, have bought diapers to give to Heartline, and you've made... Uh, monetary donations uh, to various ministries that are back there as well. So I wanted to say thank you for those that have already done that and wanted you to know that those are going to continue to be up at the back of the auditorium uh, for the rest of this month. Those are just opportunities for us to try to go above and beyond our, our typical generosity, uh, which is wonderful, but to go above and beyond to try to support intangible gifts we could give or in monetary donations to support many of the ministries and organizations that do such wonderful work here in our town. Uh, and one that is more beyond local uh, than you even just heard me pray for them is uh, I'll point you to the, the tree back over here but it's for uh, we're trying to raise additional funds for a family that we call the South family that's not their real name but we have to use code for them that we've sent out uh, to Southeast Asia they have a coffee business they are needing as they expand the business to try to reach more people groups uh, they're needing to build a new facility a dry mill I just like drinking coffee I don't know how it gets made but I know that's a, an important part of the process and um, they, they need funds to make that happen and rather than just trying to slowly accumulate through their own work there over time they're, they're trying to, to seek if people like us uh, that might be able to give from our abundance to help jumpstart that and donate that and uh, Cal the husband uh, of that uh, family sent a few of us a message even last night and just said how encouraged he's been to see updates come in of our generosity and other local people's generosity to them I think they've already raised something like 20 $27,000, something like that, which is a fraction of what they need for the whole project. But I, I don't want you to think of what it is compared to the whole, but think of what it is compared to zero uh, that, that we and others have donated toward their mission. And so if you would like to help donate toward that, uh, there's papers back there that can tell you how to make contributions uh, directly to that fund. But uh, thank you for your generosity to our common fund and then to those special um, uh, campaigns as well. I trust that you've found Luke chapter 1. We're going to look, uh, start at verse 26 here in just a few moments. But at the risk of stating the obvious, Christmas is about a birth, right? That's what we're celebrating. That's what we're remembering as we come up to December 25th. Even if it wasn't the actual birthday of Jesus, what we're celebrating is the birth of someone, the birth of Jesus. But oftentimes as we're recounting the, the nativity story, that Christmas story in churches and in our homes, or when it, definitely when it gets depicted in media, it's, it's sanitized. It's kind of idealized, romanticized, this story of this couple traveling and going on a long journey. And uh, we stress its joys, which are right. There's many joys of the Christmas stories, but I think we ignore the pains of the Christmas story oftentimes, the difficult edges of it, the, the hardships that would have come to the participants. Uh, because as any mother uh, in the room can tell you, birth is painful. Right, uh, that and that is an understatement. I, I cannot speak to that as a father, but birth stories 
The Christmas story, birth stories include much pain in them. It's not just all roses and joys. They always have been stories of pain, uh, joy and pain. And uh, that's always been that way. If you read the very beginning of the Bible, uh, there was this idyllic, idyllic kind of moment in the sun for the human race, but it didn't last long. And when Adam and Eve sinned, God pronounced this curse over creation and over humanity. And one of the things that he said uh, in Genesis 3 when he was giving this curse, explaining what life was going to be like, he spoke directly to Eve, to our foremother, our, our first mother, so to speak, as a human race. And Genesis 3 tells us that to the woman, God said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. He said it twice. It's parallel pain. I'll multiply your pain. In pain, you will bring forth children. And that has been the case. Every birth of every human being has had pain accompanying it. Uh, Billions now of human beings have been born in pain. And Mary's delivery of Jesus... Her pregnancy, her delivery was no exception, right? There was pain involved, and intense pain involved for Mary. And this morning, we're going to read part of the story that was leading up to that eventual birth of Jesus. Uh, we're not going to read the part. It'll be in a, a next Sunday and beyond where we'll actually read about the labor, the delivery, although it's short accounts of those. Uh, we'll read about those in future weeks. But if we go back a little bit further, say nine months further in the story, that's where we're going to read today. Uh, the When Mary is first told that she's going to become pregnant, that she's going to have a son, uh, this is when, what we're about to read, is when that abstract idea of the pain of childbearing that Mary had heard about, it's when it starts to become real in her own life, that she starts to see pain is coming for me on the horizon, uh, that this pain of childbirth is about to enter into my life. It's not just going to be secondhand, it's going to be firsthand experience of my own life, of my own body. And we're going to see how Mary responds to this message, how she responds to this message of Gabriel, of this impending birth. And I, I hope, I trust as we read this, that this story becomes more to you than just some interesting story in history about some woman who has been important historically. I hope that, the, the and I trust that the Spirit will use this text to minister to us, uh, to help us think, how do I respond to pain in my life? How do I respond to the prospect of pain? And we have a tremendous example in Mary of how she responds. So if you don't know much about Luke, uh, what Luke is, it's one of the four records, spirit-inspired records that we have about the life of Jesus. And like Matthew, Luke starts at the very beginning of Jesus' life, even before Jesus' life. And he starts in chapter 1 by talking about these angelic visits that happened to certain people before uh, Jesus was conceived, before this other baby, his distant cousin, was conceived. And what we're about to read is the second of two angelic visits that Luke records in chapter 1. The first one had been to a man named Zechariah. That one had taken place in the temple in Jerusalem. Zechariah served as a priest. He was a distant relative of Mary. Uh, But God had met with him and told him, your aging barren wife Elizabeth is going to conceive and bear a son. Uh, And there's going to be great joy. And that baby ended up being who we know as John the Baptist, who's like a forerunner of Jesus. Um, But this, what we're about to read, is when that same angel Gabriel is going to make a second visit six months later to Mary. And so we're going to read this. uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 26. And I'm going to go down to verse 38. We're going to read about how Gabriel, this angel, visits 
visits a young virgin named Mary and gives her this uh, message, this proclamation of what is to come true in her life. So Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uh, uh, continued his history by writing this. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. This is the word of God. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word. I want to summarize this message from this section of Luke's gospel and that I want to convey to us as a church family this morning. It's a simple message, and it's in some ways similar to last week's, but embedded in this particular story would be this, is that the prospect of pain must be met with the power of trust. That the prospect of pain must be met with the power of trust. And we're going to try, I'm going to try to spend as much time as I can in verse 38, where Mary expresses her trust in God and his plan, her, her willingness to embrace this painful plan of God, um, because it is a remarkable statement. It is short, but it is powerful and it is remarkable. There's so much for us to learn from it in verse 38, but I don't think we can fully appreciate verse 38 and what she was expressing without really trying to, to soak in the story and think through the situation and what was actually happening, what was being told to her and what that meant in her life and even in her own mind and heart. And I, I, I want us to try first, before we see her expression of trust, I want us to really try to sense the painfulness of the path that was being laid before her by the angel Gabriel because I think we could read this and we could just sanitize it and just romanticize it and not really think how painful this path was that was now laid open before Mary. And so I want to, to make sure we're understanding the scene here. Luke sets it up really well for us. He's very orderly even by his own account and how he tells these stories and recounts what happened. And so he starts in verse 26. He tells us a few things in those first few verses that help us make sense of what's going on here. So he says it's 
this takes place in the sixth month. That doesn't mean June. It means the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. That would have just been referred to right before that, when the barren, aging Elizabeth had conceived and, and, and uh, was going to give birth to her son, John the Baptist. But in that sixth month of her pregnancy, this same angel Gabriel is sent from God to to the city of Nazareth. And I think city would have been a stretch. It's a, from all I can tell from what I've read, it was like a podunk town uh, that was in the middle of nowhere. The first angelic visit had been in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, the hub where everything happened. This is going to, before this story, an anonymous girl, a no-name girl in a very small, almost no-name town named Nazareth. And he comes to this young virgin named Mary who is betrothed to a man named Joseph. And uh, we don't know tons uh, and tons about betrothal, but we can piece things together. We do know more. I'm saying we don't typically know in our culture what betrothal is. It's kind of a beefed up version of engagement, uh, where there is often this two-stage process where you become betrothed to a future spouse. There'd be a contractual arrangement, and then maybe a year or so would go by, and then you would live together. You would consummate the marriage. You would start to live fully as husband and wife, but there was this intermediate period of time, kind of like an engagement, and Mary, this young woman he comes to visit, is in that process with Joseph. Uh, She's in that period of time where there has been a contractual arrangement, but they are not yet fully married, and but that's not, this is an important detail, that's not that far off yet in the future. It wasn't like, oh, it's going to be five years from now, a decade from now. This would have been in the fairly near-term future that she would ultimately finally be married to Joseph. And she would have been young. She would have been probably mid uh, to early teens, mid-teen range uh, of age-wise. And she was entering into what was a very typical arrangement, right? That Thousands and thousands of young men and women in Israel would do this very thing. They would enter into a betrothal, um, but her life is about to get turned upside down here. It's about to become anything but typical. And Gabriel comes to this young woman, and he, uh, he gives her this initial greeting. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. And we're not told exactly why, but Mary is greatly troubled at that saying. She's probably just surprised by the fact of being visited by an angel at all. But she, perhaps she's disturbed by him calling her a favored one. Remember who she is, this no-name girl in a no-name town. How could it be that she is favored, the favored one uh, of God? Uh, so she's disturbed by his initial greeting. But then Gabriel starts to tell her why he was sent there. He starts to tell her what is going to come true in her life. He tells her a few things right off the bat. He says that uh, she's going to become pregnant, right? That she is going to uh, have a son, specifically. She would have been one of the first people to know what gender of child she was going to have for sure. Uh, So he tells her, you're going to become pregnant. You're going to have a son. Uh, And then he tells her that, that his name should be Jesus. That's what she and Joseph should name this child. That's what is verse 31. If that's all that was going to be said, Gabriel probably didn't need to come, right? Those are very normal things. She wasn't far off from being fully married, 
probably in her own mind before he came, she was imagining maybe two years from now I'll become a mother. Uh, I don't, it wouldn't have been way far off in the future, but he's telling her, you are going to conceive, you are going to bear a son, you shall name his name Jesus. Jesus was a common name. There would have been a lot of Jesuses, or whatever the plural is, running around in Israel uh, in that day. Uh, so if that's all he was going to say, he probably didn't need to come. God could have spared uh, the time of sending him, but he tells her much more than that, right? He, he continues and he tells her that this son is going to be great, right? Verse 32, he'll be great. He tells him not just that he's going to have the name Jesus, but he's going to be called the son of the most high. That is a, a staggering thing to say. That wasn't just something people would call each other then. To, to say that he is going to be called the son of the most high God, was quite a statement. And then he says, on top of that, that the Lord is going to give this son of hers the throne of his father David. Uh, and that he is going to not just become a king, but he is going to reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Uh, that is not the type of thing in all her wildest dreams that she would have imagined for her kids. She would have never imagined something like that. Uh, maybe they would be a carpenter. Maybe they would be successful locally. But he's telling her in different ways, your son is going to be the Messiah. Like the one who we have been waiting for, that God's people have been waiting for for millennia. Like he is going to be the one. Like he, he's not just going to be a special kid. John, there had been, John the Baptist, his parents had been told some pretty cool, wonderful things about what he was going to be like. They were not told their son's going to rule forever or that he's going to be the son of the most high. These are unique, one-of-a-kind things that are told to Mary of what her son is going to be like. And this text alone should settle the dispute that I hear come up every year of, Mary, did you know the lyrics of that song? Yes, she did, okay? Uh, she, she knew. This is, this, it's poetic language in some ways. It, it may feel cryptic to us. It would not have been cryptic to her. Like for, for him to say he's going to be called the son of the most high, that he's going to be a king who reigns forever over the house of David, is saying he is going to be the Messiah. He is going to be the one that we have been waiting for, that you have been waiting for. And so you may think, where's the pain in this? I thought you were talking about pain. <laughs> I thought this was uh, setting up, this sounds wonderful and joyful uh, to think about. And it is, that there is wonderful uh, dimensions to this story, but Mary only talks twice in this text. She says two very simple things. Uh, in verse 34, she asks a question. And then in verse 38, she expresses her trust. And I would say, if you pay attention to what she asks, uh, you start to know uh, the, how the wheels are turning in her head uh, of, of why she's asking it. And if you pay attention to her question in 34, you will start, I think it's like a, a window opening and shedding light on how Mary's understanding this, this promise, this, this path that's laid before her. Because what she asks, and you start to see the prospect of pain, even in her question, is she asks, how will this be since I am a virgin, right? Zechariah, that first guy that had got visited, he asked the question also uh, when Gabriel had come to him and, and told him that his wife was going to conceive and bear a son. But he had asked a question in unbelief, right? If you look back at verse 18, he had asked, Gabriel, how can I know this? 
And basically what he was asking was for a sign, was for proof from Gabriel that, that this would actually be. But Mary asks this question, I would say, in faith. She, she's asking for clarity. She's not expressing skepticism. Like, I think she fully believes that what Gabriel just said will actually come true. But there is a significant question she has how will this be since I am a virgin? And the very fact that she asks that, I think if I'm understanding this text right, shows that she understood what Gabriel was saying as about to happen very, very soon. Not just something that's gonna happen next year or two years from now. He hadn't told her, unless you see something I don't, that the timing of when this was gonna happen. She would have been expecting to become a mom not far in the future. But he uh, is saying something and she's picking up, I don't know if it's in the tone or if there's things he may have told her in addition to these things, but she is picking up on, this is going to take place before me and Joseph consummate our marriage. This is going to take place before that date, that wedding date. Uh, this is going to happen sooner. How will this be since I am a virgin? And Gabriel responds with an answer uh, that may not satisfy us in our scientific age that we want to know how did he, how was Jesus conceived? Uh, how was he conceived in the womb of a virgin? But Gabriel's answer is more theological than biological. Like he, he says that the Holy Spirit uh, and the Most High God, that they are going to be involved overshadowing her, uh, that, they, that the Spirit will come upon her. Uh, we don't, I don't know what that means biologically, anatomically. I don't don't know what that means, but he's saying that the Spirit of God is going to sire this child, not Joseph, not some other man, that God himself is going to be the father of this child. And if Elizabeth's pregnancy, her older relative, was going to be amazing, and it was, Mary's pregnancy is going to be miraculous. It's going to be supernatural. There's no natural explanation to it. But imagine Mary's mind and heart as she asks that question and hears that answer. Joseph is not going to be the father, but you are going to be pregnant. Who is going to believe that? Like who, as her womb, as the baby develops in her womb, as her belly starts to grow, and people ask questions, who is going to believe her when she says, the Holy Spirit overshadowed me, guys? I promise it wasn't Joseph. I, I promise it wasn't anybody else. Like, who would believe that? Like, Mary is not a fool, and she is not naive. I doubt God would have entrusted the Son of God to a fool or to some naive young woman. She is wise, she is smart, and she, even in the questions she asked, is starting to see pain out on the horizon. Right? She's starting, I think, to anticipate the questions that will come from her dad. The side-eyed looks that are going to come from everybody else in Nazareth. The questions that are going to even come from Joseph himself. Like, how, what? Like, how could this be, Mary? Like, why were you unfaithful to me? How could you be pregnant? What are people going to think? She knows in the, in the, the nature of our world and how it operates that if she conceives a child in this way and she believes that will take place, that assumptions are going to be made by people, that judgments are going to be rendered by people, Right? That her reputation is going to be thrown in the garbage in many people's eyes. That there are going to be rumors that spread about her that she is probably going to experience isolation from people. 
She knows that those things, those, those dominoes are going to start to fall. And it may just take a few months, but they are going to fall, and she knows it. I, I often wish we could hear the tone in people's voices, uh, but God gave us a written text. But I would love to hear the tone in her voice in verse 34. Uh, the, the pain that she's anticipating, even in asking that question, and then hearing the answer but there would have been this prospect of social and emotional pain that she starts to see on the horizon. But let us not forget the physical pain that is on the horizon now. She may have thought she had a couple years left until she would become pregnant, until her body would have to go through that painful process of childbearing. But as she is told, you are going to become pregnant and you are about to become pregnant very, very soon, Mary. Those physical pains are starting to become reality. They're, they're not far off on the horizon any longer. And this, I think, is lost on us in today's world. I appreciate the devotional that we've recommended uh, reading this month from Hannah Anderson. She has a, a devotional entry called Birth Pains where she talks about this. And it, it helps me as a man to think through these texts because I just read about pregnancy and I think of just the joy to come and I don't often think of the pains and the trials that accompany it. But one thing she pointed out and this is obvious when you stop to think about it, is that through most of human history, pregnancies, every pregnancy was high risk, right? Today we have some that are, but we have the blessings of technology and, and medical care that can help anticipate problems, identify problems, address problems that arise in pregnancy. But up until recently in human history, there was tremendous risk in childbearing. There was immense pain in childbearing. It was not uncommon for mothers to die in delivery. There's a famous story even in Genesis. Read Genesis 35. There's a famous story of Jacob, the patriarch of Israel, and his wife Rachel coming near to Bethlehem even, and her having a hard labor to deliver her son Benjamin, and she dies. And a pillar is erected there. This was, this was in the history of Israel, and it was also in the history of Nazareth, no doubt. Mary would have known probably many people, even in her short lifespan, who had gotten very sick in childbearing, or maybe even who had passed away in childbearing. There were no ultrasounds. There were no transfusions. There were no epidurals. There were no C-sections. Every pregnancy was high risk and high pain. And this is about to come into Mary's life. Pain upon pain is in the forecast for her. And there is nothing in this announcement that guarantees her safety. Right? He tells her uh, that her son will be born, that he will grow up, that he will rule, he'll become a king. But there's nothing beyond her actually delivering the son that is promised to her. She doesn't know what is going to come. There's this prospect of pain on the horizon now, and it's getting closer and closer by the second now that Gabriel has come and told her what will be. And that prospect of pain in this message and what Mary's anticipating is what makes her expression of trust in verse 38 so remarkable to me. Like her expression of trust that, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It is a, it's a simple statement, but it is a, a powerful statement of trust. And I, I think there's much that we can learn from it. There are people, there are churches that say, speak too highly of Mary, I would say, and I won't name them, but you probably know who they are, uh, that churches that teach too high, speak too highly, think too highly of Mary, but I think we run the opposite risk of thinking too little of her. 
and not appreciating the, the deep uh, evidence of faith in her life and then how the Lord did use her in service of the world, in service of his kingdom. And so I want us to, to look at what she says here, this expression of trust, because she, I mean, she doesn't even flinch on this. It's, if this was me, which I'm not a woman, I certainly would have, wouldn't have been being told I'm going to become pregnant, and, but I could imagine being her and I, I could imagine us doing our, oh, I need to pray about this. Like, please, Gabriel, give me some time to think about this, to pray over this. She doesn't even do that. I don't know how long this conversation was, but it was short. And by the end of that short conversation, she is saying, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. It was what her instinct was. She had been trained to believe that, trained to trust the Lord, but she doesn't bat an eye. She asks a question. Seeking clarity, but then she expressed this trust in the Lord and his plan, even with this high prospect of pain. But note what she says. She says, behold, I am a servant, or I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I want to point out a few things of what she says. I so appreciate that she doesn't just say, let it be to me according to your word. Like in some fatalistic, like, okay, you told me that's, it's going to be whether I like it or not. Let's just get this over with. Like she starts not by just saying, let it be, but she starts by reminding herself and even telling Gabriel who she is. Like she, she starts by saying what her identity is. That, her identity informs her expression of trust. It's because she sees herself and knows herself to be the servant of the Lord that she is able to say then the second sentence, let it be to me according to your word. She is not just fatalistically, begrudgingly accepting it. She is gladly accepting, willingly accepting uh, what Gabriel is saying and all the pain that is involved. She is not like a passive pawn in the plan of God. She is a willing servant of God. She, she is gladly entering into this role of service. And she says that, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Not just I'm a servant, hey, just do whatever, but she knows she is a servant of God. She is a servant of the Lord. And in that title, the Lord would have carried, it would have carried so much freight in her mind of who this God is that she's a servant of. That he is the God who created that he is the God who had made promises of a savior, the one she's presumably going to carry. He is the God who had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. He is the God who had brought them back from exile. He is the God who had faithfully shown mercy to them even in, in the face of their rebellion. She knows what this God is like. She knows that he is the author of her story. Right? He is the Lord. He is the ruler. He is the king. She's not. She is the servant and I just, I just want to pause and think on that for a moment because we get this painfully wrong in our hearts and in our culture today. We tend to think of whether we would say this or not, we think of God as our servant, right? We think of God as the servant of me. We wouldn't have the audacity to say that, but we think he, what, the reason he exists is to help me. The reason he exists is to fix my problems. The reason he exists is to make my life pleasant. And that's how we approach him. That's how we think of him. And so if that is our mindset, he is the servant of me. It is no wonder when the prospect of pain comes into our life that we start to get bitter. We start to get mad. We start to view it as a failure of God. We start to get frustrated 
We think that God is either failing us or holding out on us. Like, why aren't you fixing this? Why aren't you serving me the way I want to be served? But it is vital that we think and believe like Mary that we are his servants. He is not ours. Our lives exist to bring him glory, right? Uh, He doesn't exist for us. We exist for him. And that is so fundamental to get into our hearts. And Mary had it in hers. And so she can trust him then. She knows I'm his servant. I, I in whatever way my life takes shape, I am his servant. I, I am doing his will. I'm, I'm seeking to bring him honor. That is why she can say, let it be to me according to your word. And she trusts her life not just to unfold and, and, and think that God will just kind of figure it out as he goes, Right? Just some blind, naive trust. She knows, let it be to me according to your word. She's talking to Gabriel, but by extension to God, saying, God, I know that you have a plan. I know this involves pain. There's immense pain that's coming near to me on the horizon, but I know that you are doing something in it. I know that you have purpose. I know that you have intention in this pain that you're bringing into my life. May it be done to me according to your word. And so she trusts even what uh, he will have. I love the song we sing where we say, Oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose. Do you remember sometimes we sing that lyric? Mary would have sung that if she knew English. Uh, Use my ransomed life any way you choose. Pain and all. Like, let it be to me according to your word. I trust you with what you have in store for me. I would not have willed it for myself, but I trust you in it. That is the, the trust that Mary expresses. And I, I, my mind, I so appreciated going down this rabbit trail of thought this week. I couldn't help but think how, since we are celebrating the birth of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, I, I loved thinking and contemplating how Mary's expression of trust impacted her very son. As he would grow up, as he would watch the way that she would live, as he would hear the way that she prayed, as he would see her embrace of the plan of God even in pain, how that would have impacted him as a young boy and as a teenager and as a young man. I I just imagine the conversations that they would have. And and, uh, someday we will know those things, I think, in glory and we can maybe even ask them themselves. But Jesus' pain, and we're going to read more of this if you get deeper into Luke. Jesus' pain was going to far, far, far surpass Mary's. Right? Mary's was intense. There, there was pain that God brought into her life, but hers did not hold a candle to the pains that her son was going to face. The things that he was going to have to endure. Mary had to go through pregnancy and delivery. And she had to go through social pains of of feeling rejected by people. And being perhaps mocked or made fun of or shunned. She dealt with those things. But Jesus, he dealt with some of those things, right? He was betrayed by his friends. His disciples abandoned him. His name was smeared, right? He, He was lied about publicly and privately. He endured physical suffering, Not of delivery or pregnancy, obviously, but the scourging of his body, the whipping of his back, right? The the placing of a crown of thorns upon his head. But Jesus had a whole different level of pain that he had to endure that Mary never would, that, that none of us ever will. 
If we are in Christ, he, he endured when he went to the cross the pains, not just of being abandoned by his friends and not just of having his body beaten, but he went through the pains of experiencing the wrath of his heavenly father, of bearing the sins of people like me and you that were not his own, of taking those onto himself and being crushed by God the Father. That is pain that I cannot even fathom, the infinite pain that he was to endure. And I, I think about the conversations that he would have had with Mary and the things he would have seen in her life. And then I think about things that Luke himself records Jesus saying. As he started, Jesus knew that stuff was coming, right? He knew it more certainly than Mary knew a baby was coming into her womb. Jesus knew the cross was coming. And he, Luke says a couple times things that I, I just hear echoes of Mary in Jesus. In Luke 9, 51, Luke records Jesus knowing full well what was going to happen. Luke says that when the days drew near for him to be taken up, which would have been like the facing of the cross and then the resurrection and ascension, he says Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem. He knew the pain was on the horizon. It was getting closer and closer and closer, and Jesus did not run away from it. He set his face to it. Like he said, I am going to endure that. Like I am going to experience that. Let it be. He set his face toward it, just like his mother had set her face to accept the will of God. And then the very night before Jesus was betrayed, the night he was being betrayed, the night before he was arrested and crucified, you may remember this, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, as this is now just minutes or hours away from him, not days or months or years, as his pain is just hours away from him, he's already experiencing some of it. Jesus said this, he prayed this, and does this not sound like his mom? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed that. Like he knew the agony that was coming. Like he knew it was, he was on the cusp of it. But just like his mom, before he's conceived, he prays. If there's, I, I accept this. Like your will be done. My will would be something different if I was just left to myself. I wouldn't write my story this way. But, but your will be done. And Jesus knew that was the only way. He, he knew that suffering, he had agreed to it before he was even sent into the world, right? But he prays, not my will be done, but yours be done. And I, I trust that he learned some of that from his mom. He saw that embodied in her life. And Mary, and then her son, and then countless others, they have been able to meet the prospect of their pain with the power of trust in God. As pain came nearer to them, as they started to experience it, they expressed their trust in God. They were committed to trust him. In the pains of our life, we can be enabled to do the same. There are pains in each of your life right now. There is stuff that happened this week that I could barely bear to be with people, to walk through with them in their lives right now. Pains that are intense where death is on the door of a young child and there, there's sufferings that are happening in people's lives or bearing parents, things like that. There are pains in our life and we have to meet those with something, 
right? As, as pain gets close to us, as it comes near to us, we have to meet it with something. We don't want to be crushed under it. We don't want to run away from it. We want to meet it with trust. We want to meet the pain of broken relationships with trust in God. We want to meet the pain of financial hardship with trust in God. We want to meet the pain of physical ailments and sufferings and surgeries and accidents and diseases and injuries with trust in God, right? We want to meet things like embarrassment or bullying or intimidation or, or uh, abandonment. We want to meet those things with trust in God because pain is a tried and true tool of Satan, right? If he cannot get us to indulge in the sins of the flesh and just being licentious and just indulging in overtly sinful things, he, you see it happen in the book of Job, right? He seeks to bring pain to a person's life to derail their faith, to, to break down their trust, to make them think God is, is not for you, God is against you, he's forgotten you. Why would you serve such a God? We have to face the prospect of pain with trust in the Lord, And there are things that we can do, I think, we can even see hints of in this text to help us develop that trust in God, to help us hone it, deepen it. Uh, we, We should not wait. You should not wait until the moment of pain to try to develop your trust, right? If you wait till that moment, God can help you learn to trust him, but trust is much better developed in calm times than it is in hard times. Like you usually aren't just planting seeds in the middle of storms, right? Like you plant them well before and you seek to grow trust in the Lord. I would encourage you, if you're in a time in your life of calm and ease, to seek to develop trust in God even now. Learn about what he is like. Learn about your identity. Plant roots down deep in times of calm so that when the storms come and when pains come, trust is already well established. I've heard Pastor John Piper talk about how he talks so much about the sovereignty of God because he doesn't want to have to when he's in the hospital room, right? Like we we need to have well-established trust and belief in God in days of, of, of calm to be prepared for days of trouble. And so a few things I would point out just briefly, even from this text that you see were true in Mary's heart that could become true in your heart to develop this trust is to first, if you're trying to develop a trust in God, is to remember his profound favor upon you. If you are united with Jesus, if you have turned from your sin and placed your trust in Christ, Gabriel and I could say as truly to you today as Gabriel said to Mary that day, I could call you, oh, favored one. And say that the favor of the Lord is upon you. And you must remember that. Uh, and remember that that is not a deserved favor. That is not an earned favor. That's not a merited favor. It's not as if God has looked at you and thought, you know what, she's pretty good. Like, I, I, I show my favor to her. Or he's doing well, you know. Like, I, I, I'm going to rest my favor upon him. His favor over us is something that Jesus gained for us. Not that we gained for ourselves. And if we're united with Jesus... God smiles over us. I appreciate Pastor Larry saying that over the years again and again and again, that God is smiling over us if we are united with his son. And we must remember that because pain will tempt us to think otherwise, right? It will tempt us to think that God is frowning, that God is angry at me, that God is judging me. God, if you are united with Christ, is not against you. He is not anti you he is for you his favor is upon you even if the circumstances of life tempt you to think otherwise 
And even if Satan whispers to tempt you to think otherwise, God is for you. His favor is upon you if you're united with his son. So you must remember his favor. Second thing, you must remember his presence. I appreciate that he tells Mary in verse 28, the Lord is with you. Right? Not just he has favor upon you, but he, he, he's kind of up in the heavens and he just sent me because, you know, like, he doesn't really want to be here with you. Like, he tells her, here in Nazareth, little town, here, where nobody else uh, even knows hardly that you exist, the Lord is with you here. And this is important for us to remember if we are united with Jesus, if we are Christians, to know that the Lord is with us. He is not just observing our pain from afar. He is, by his Holy Spirit, he is even within us. He is dwelling within us. We talked about that last Sunday, how he groans within us. He's not even just next to us as a buddy. He is within us as our God, as our, as our guide. The Spirit of God is with us in our pain. He is with us in our calm. But we believe that in our calm. We doubt it in our pain. And we must remember that the scriptures say it's true even if you think it's not. That God is with you in your pain. So remember his favor, remember his presence, but also remember his sovereignty over all things. I appreciate that she says, let it be to me according to your word. That, that she knew, and we must remember, that all things are under the control of our God and Father. Even the painful ones. Everything, every atom of this universe is under his control. Every bit of it. And if we forget that, if we doubt that, if we disbelieve that, then our trust is going to erode slowly but surely. Our, our, if we just start to think of God as a reactionary God, or as a, a God who is not all-powerful, God who is not in control of things, then why would we pray to him? Why would we have any confidence that he can deliver me from this or that he can raise me from the dead? Why would we pray to a God who is not fully sovereign? Like the Lord is in control of all things, but that grates against our instincts as human beings, doesn't it? When there's pain in our life, we think that can't be part of God's plan. There's no way that could be part of God's plan, but all things are under his control. Every minute of your life, every year of your life, every difficulty that you go through is under the, the watchful care and control of our Heavenly Father. And we must remember that when we come up to the prospect of pain. God is not winging it, right? God is not just reacting to the things that come in your life. He is designing your life. So we must remember his favor, remember his presence, remember his sovereignty. And the last thing I would say is that we must remember our future. Like, because those things help us in the present. They help us know God is for me, God is with me, God is in control. But we must remember that that carries on through all time as well. It's not just that he's in control right now, but he is in control always. Jesus will reign forever right? His kingdom will have no end to it. And that is an important thing for us when we are in the midst of pain or when pain is on the horizon to know that that pain someday, if we're united with Christ, will end. Pain is awful. I don't wish it upon anyone. There is redemptive effect that can happen in it, but it is hard. It is something that we are resistant to. It is part of the curse for a reason. 
right? It's difficult for us as human beings, but our pain will not last forever, and the resurrection of Jesus is proof of that, that he has been raised to never experience pain again, and someday he is going to establish a world where there will be no pain. All pain is temporary. There's a, a pastor uh, who I, re- I was reading a book of his um, a year or two ago. His name is Eugene Peterson. Uh, but he said this little line, just three words uh, that was significant to me. He said that, or four, I think. He said, all pain is prelude. That all pain is prelude. That, that this pain is real and intense in our life. It is difficult. It stress tests our trust. But it is all temporary and it is all building towards something better. It is building towards uh, a, a much better reality. And at Advent, it, this is a time of year we remember that. We remember that some, not just that Jesus came once, but that someday he is going to come again. I want to end by quoting this to you. It's a text I refer to often and I'd encourage you to revisit often. Even in times that are lacking pain. Even in times of calm, I would encourage you to read the end of the Bible. Uh, in Revelation 21, uh, one of the, the closing parts of the scriptures, the apostle John is given a glimpse into the future uh, and what he sees uh, is wonderful. It's glorious for us to contemplate. In Revelation 21, verses three to four, he recorded this, looking into the future, that I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then hear this. He says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. Uh, That is going to happen like for the people of God there will come a day where God will wipe the tears from our eyes he won't just tell us to suck it up and like that wasn't so bad was it like that now do you get it like he won't be frustrated with us but he will have compassion and mercy upon us and wipe tears from our eyes but there will at that moment at that day be an end to death and mourning and even pain itself Pain was part of the curse. It wasn't part of how God created us to exist in the beginning and someday it will be gone from our existence forever. And pain is hard. Pain is difficult. But at the prospect of pain, we must meet it with trust in our God and our Savior. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite you to stand.